episode 207, Breaking Kippy with Godwin and Barry, or as we call this episode, Bitch Fest 2021. Barry Rose, what do you think about that, my man? How to do there? I do. How to do? How to do? This is a. Uh, this is a. This is going to be a stellar episode. I feel it in my old creaky bones, Jeff. We are going to stir some shit up today. I know it's coming. We are offering scathing commentary, which I believe is the first time we've ever used the term scathing commentary. Wonderful. Uh, on, and, and I'll get to that in a second. Before I get there, uh, our match of the week, Barry. Oh, we're going back to uh, April second, nineteen ninety three. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter's number two match of the entire year of 1993. We are going to be talking about, oh, Barry, it's been a tough weekend as you, uh, your friend Stu Schwartz, great longtime referee in CWF and in Mid-Atlantic. We lost him this weekend. Barry will be offering his thoughts. We will be talking about the Dark Side of the Ring episode on the plane ride from hell and perhaps offering some scathing commentary uh, about that particular episode and some of the things we saw, some of the things we've heard, some of the things we know. Barry, are you ready to go? I'm as excited for this episode as any we've done. Well, do me a favor. Look down and see. Are you as excited? Nah, it's all gone now, Jeff. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. All right. So, Barry, first things first. Barry has always talked about when you go to different events, whether they be the CWF Legends Fan Fest, whether it be one of the Fan Fest up in the Northeast, that you should always take time because it gives you a chance to meet the heroes present, the heroes of your youth. And uh, for Barry, for my friend Barry Rose, I know that it was an extremely tough day the other day when he lost his friend Stu Schwartz. (sighs) So Barry... I know this is not going to be easy for you talking about not just somebody that was a hero of yours, but who was actually a friend. Tell us about your friend, Stu Schwartz. Yeah, it was really, uh, it was really sad. And I, I, you know, we, I, I guess when you, when you get super close, you know, as people, you form these relationships with people and as they get older and then they get sick and they pass away and it's, there's a, a real, there's a gratitude that you have that they were in your life. But of course, that also opens up the pain. And with Stu, I really, truly, I, I guess I love Stu. I'm going to say I really like Stu a lot, but I guess I really love Stu. And he was such a, you know, taking out the whole wrestling thing. He was just a really warm, sincere and gracious guy. And I had gotten word. I, well, I'll backtrack a little bit. So. A few months back, I'll say anywhere between six months to a year, the decision had been made to put Stu into a nursing home. And mentally, Stu was pretty was pretty with it. He was going to be 91 in, uh, in November of this year. So he was two months away from 91. And he was, he was mentally, he was pretty sharp overall. He, you know, he still had his faculties about him. But physically, he was declining. He was, he was really unable to walk. He was in a wheelchair. You know, age had just caught up to him and uh, they made the decision. And I got to say, Stu made the decision to voluntarily put him. This is this is the kind of guy he was, Jeff. He didn't want to be a burden on his daughter who was facing her own health problems and her boyfriend, her her live in boyfriend or husband. I was also having severe kidney issues and I believe on dialysis. So you had a woman 
and his daughter's name is Jerry that, you know, probably in her, her sixties, I don't know her exact age, but that's my assumption. And she's got health issues. She's trying to take care of, uh, her boyfriend and her father and, and Stu decided, uh, that he was going to voluntarily take himself off of her plate. That's the kind of guy he was, he, you know, even at the risk of putting himself in a nursing home, he decided that for his child, he was going to do that because he didn't want her to be burdened. And I, and I think she put up a fight, you know, but he was determined. And I guess, you know, it all, everything, it just fell into place and it. So Stu was moved to a nursing home and, that was sad for me because at that point we were kind of, we had kind of lost contact. Uh, Sue had no, uh, Stu, uh, Stu had no internet. I really am uh, flustered by this. Stu had no internet and uh, where he had once somebody that I would communicate with on maybe almost a daily basis, whether we were at email or message or even a comment via Facebook and Stu was, was silent. And there was a phone and you could call, but uh, I, I hadn't spoken to Stu since he was moved and transferred. I do think Dottie Curtis was still in touch with him, though. So Saturday morning, uh, Gerald Briscoe said to me, he goes, I, I got word that Stu is probably going to be taking his last breath today. And it was really sad because uh, sad for me, but sad for Jerry. And it, Jerry had tears in his eyes. And, uh, you know, the, these two knew each other for 50 something years. And Stu was the Stu was the patriarch at this stage. Stu was the patriarch of CWF. And, you know, this is a promotion that closed down 34 years ago. Uh, it was 1987 when it closed down. And unfortunately, a lot of guys have passed away in those 37 years. And Harry Smith was a, uh, a legend in the Tampa area. He was a guy that had wrestled up until 75 and he was i think almost almost 100 and he died earlier this year so Stu was the patriarch and it wasn't easy for him to make the legends luncheons he had come to uh three of our fan fests as well but it wasn't always easy for him to make it there but it was everything to him as as we've realized you know for these guys to be in touch with e each other and to see each other and even to have a, a three minute conversation talking about the good old days was everything to these people and everything, you know, it just, it, it's immeasurable. And I saw it with Jerry Briscoe this weekend, Jerry coming into town for a fan fest. And it wasn't the money that brought Jerry in. Uh, it was the fact that at 75 years old, he gets to see guys that he worked with guys. He mentored guys. He trained that's everything that legitimately is everything that, you know, to these guys. So Stu was, uh, Stu was a gentleman on every level and Stu did something, uh, Stu did something at one of the legends luncheons. I don't remember which one, but I, I was sitting at a table. I, I don't know who I was with or who I was talking with. And Stu's daughter came over and said, uh, said, my dad is real excited that you're here. Would you come over and talk to him? And, and, you know, automatically the hair stands up on the back of my, you know, Stu Schwartz is excited. I'm at the Legends Luncheon, right? Let, you know, come on, really? Like, holy shit. So I go over and he's, Stu is a really gentle guy. And he was the kind of guy that always had a smile on his face and would talk to you slowly and deliberately. And I, I sat down next to him and he, he put his hand 
on my forearm as he was talking to me. And he told me how much he appreciated what I was doing because it kept his wife alive for him. This is really tough to talk about. <sighs> and, you know, he, it was so important to him that I was keeping the memory of his wife, who was Bonnie Watson, alive. And he, uh, he said, you know, he, he said, I, I really want to thank you. Uh, I can look at your page and I could see the respect that you have. And I get to see all my friends and I get to see my wife. And it was such a, such a moving moment for me. Uh, one that I just, I, on my deathbed, I don't think I could ever forget. And he said, hold on a second. We have something for you. And his daughter hands me this very large legal size envelope. And inside is Stu's entire career. And it was all these photos of Stu uh, working as a referee and a lot of photos of his wife. And these, these weren't copies. These were the original photos. And he, as he was holding and he was still holding my arm and he said, he goes, there is no other place that these should go. Please, please save these, please use these. These are photos that you should have. And I was so touched by that. That was just such a, you know, it, it's like when we talk about when we started the podcast, we, we had ideas, but we never truly knew the direction any of this was going to go. And when we can see that we've helped somebody with grief, you know, that as you, you and I have talked about it, that's everything, Jeff. That's, sure. that's, you know, there's, we could talk about anything else. Nothing matters. The fact that we may have actually helped somebody and the fact that, that Stu would say, these, these things, which were incredibly kind to me, uh, just left this impression. He was just such a, a warm, gracious, and legitimately 100% sincere in everything he said and did. And, and, and I go back and, you know, I think of my conversations with him. I was so happy when he showed up to the first fan fest as well. We gave him that award. We were the first fan fest we put Stu in the hall of fame as a referee. He was voted in. I should say it wasn't my decision. I'm certainly agreeable with it because my opinion, Stu Schwartz will always be the greatest referee that ever put on a striped shirt, but we were also able to induct his wife. And I could tell you, Stu was in tears that day. Stu's kids were in tears and you know, it's never lost on me as well, Jeff, that, you know, at the end of the day, the hall of fame, the CWF hall of fame, is a, it's a virtual creation. It, there's no physical building. There's no, there's no memorial that you can go to, to pay your respects. It's something we did to, uh, to honor the legends that we grew up watching. And at the same time, it's never lost on me how important that is to a lot of the people that have been inducted. Jerry Briscoe cried when we inducted he and Jack which I believe was our fourth event. And, uh, and Jerry had such a great line that I can get a lot of accolades. I can get it from college and to the pro sports. But when people paid money, when fans who had to work their asses off all week long just to get money for a ticket vote you into something, that's the most meaningful thing I could ever receive. And that, that was like, that's a, that's a holy fucking wow moment, in my opinion, right there. No, absolutely. And, yeah, and, and I spoke with Jerry about it, and I said, I got to be honest, you said this 
three years ago, this, this has not left me. Like that stayed with me. That was so impactful on me. And he said, he goes, I got to be honest. I meant it. He goes, you know, every time a fan comes up to me and says, you know, Mr. Briscoe, I used to watch you at the old Atlanta city auditorium. And, you know, you were tag teaming with, and somebody did, you were tag teaming with Rocky Johnson. And I sat there and, and I went with my, my mother and my father and my grandfather. And, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad, you know, would have to work to get money. And, and Jerry would sit there and listen to these stories. And it, you know, it, and we, we would talk about it afterwards. I'd say, wow, that was real. And he goes, he goes, that, that's why I come to these things. He goes, I, I come here so that people can tell me, you know, exactly what impact I had on them and, and what form of an impact I had on them. And, you know, it's, it makes everything I did worth, worthwhile. And I just, I find that so, so endearing on so many levels. So losing Stu is it's, you know, and Jeff, we have lost a lot of people over the last few years. And whether it's uh, the environment that we live in currently, it's age, it's a combination of all of it. I started looking at the amount of people that have been at our fan fest and the amount of people we have lost in four years. And it's, it's staggering and heartbreaking at the same time. And uh, look, I, I know Stu was almost 91 years old, full life. It doesn't soften it, doesn't soften that blow at all. He was such a wonderful human being that transcended professional wrestling on every level. And, and I'll share this last great story with you that he shared with me. So I, I asked him once, I said, so how did you, how did you meet Bonnie? You know, where and Bonnie Watson was, we call her the perennial Florida women's champion. She was a homesteader. So Bonnie and Stu were married for 50 something years, but Bonnie Watson was the Florida women's champion and she would trade that title with Sherry Lee. Sherry Lee was another homesteader. She was dating Lester Welch for years. So they were always here because they, they lived in Florida. They weren't traveling the country. And, uh, Bonnie was literally the Florida women's champion for like 25 years or something like that. She was the Mike Jackson. She was the ladies, uh, women, uh, the women's title in Florida, the way that Mike Jackson was the Alabama junior heavyweight champion for how many years now? Maybe about 45, 40, 50 years. I love Mike <laughs> Jackson like that. too. There's <laughs> another guy I really like. And, uh, and, and she was, so she would wrestle for a couple of weeks. She would go all around the circuit TV appearances. She would disappear for three months and then they would, she'd come back out and do it all over again. Sometimes with Sherry Lee, sometimes they would bring in a Vivian Vachon or a Sandy Parker, somebody like that. So, so they were married for 50 something years. So if you ever notice Stu, Stu was in great shape. Stu was in better shape than 90% of the guys he was refereeing. He was just, he had movie star, good looks. He was in, you know, amazing physical shape. So I said to him, I said, so, you know, how did you meet Bonnie? Were you, were you already refereeing and refereeing her matches? And Stu looks at me and he goes, I had never seen wrestling in my life. He goes, I was bartending. And, and so Stu, Stu had moved down in uh, the late forties to Tampa from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, had gone to Hillsborough high school, went to the university of Tampa and uh, in the interim was bartending throughout the city. And his parents were, 
they were kind of uh, I don't socialites, not the correct term, but they were well known throughout the city of Tampa. Uh, they were well known people, and uh, I, you know they weren't political figures, but they were well known figures. And so it, you know, Stu being a bartender even made the newspapers once, and I had this newspaper clipping that I shared with him. And so he said, because I had never seen wrestling in my life and I was bartending and all of a sudden the most beautiful woman I had ever seen walked into this bar. She had this beautiful smile. She had this beautiful blonde hair. And I felt like, like this ray of sunshine just was shining on us. He said, I was immediately smitten with her and I fell in love with her. And this I think was 1956. They were married within a year, uh, a year later, 1957, and Bonnie actually broke Stu into the business. And I always just found that so interesting, you know, because a lot of times we always see the opposite where the boyfriend or the husband's in the business and the wife gets in one reason or another. This was a totally different situation, but his love for his wife to me is the, and even, you know, to his last breath. He carried it torch for his wife. It never let up. And I do think in some ways that contributed because he loved, loved his wife, you know, and should, that should be the barometer of how we all love uh, our spouses or our mates, you know. So Stu Schwartz, rest in peace. As Jeff says, Jeff, will you say it for us? Uh, we raise an adult beverage to the memory of the great legend of CWF, Stu Schwartz. I love you, Stu. So before we go, I, I do have a couple of things I wanted to ask you about Stu. How long did Stu work in CWF? So Stu was in CWF. He had his first match at some point in the, uh, the second half of the 60s. And then Stu wrapped up around early 76. And then he shifted over to the mid-Atlantic area. They made, they, he and Bonnie lived in the Carolinas. And then uh, I guess give or take, Roughly 10 years ago, they decided to move back down to Tampa, and that was to be closer to uh, his children, as three of his four children were living in the Tampa area. And when did we lose his wife? Uh, about seven years ago. Seven years ago. Okay. So, um, did and as many times as you talked to Stu, did Stu have any uh, memorable stories from his days in the ring that he shared with you? And, you know, since we've lost them. And we don't want this to be too maudlin. Any uh, any funny stories that that you remember that Stu told you of stuff that happened while he was reffing? Uh, I I can't offhand. I put you on the spot there. I'm sorry. You did, and I I can't offhand think of anything he told me because I don't think we ever got into like the the funny stories. I can tell you, and I think you'll you'll enjoy this one. So, at our first fan fest, there was a gentleman walking around, and and Jeff ran up to me and goes. That guy looks a lot like Roberto Soto. Over there. <laughs> the Roberto and, Soto. Yes. And I, I was like, you know, and it was far. I remember exactly where we were. We were all the way across the room and I'm looking across the room and I'm going, that looks like Roberto Soto, Jeff. I did not know that. And I said, it does look like Roberto Soto. Turns out the guy that he came with, the guy had bought a ticket. Uh, he's good friends with Roberto Soto. So I know you went up and said, are you Roberto Soto? And he totally he totally like kayfabe you on that. He said, did not break kayfabe. I can tell you that. Right. He did. And then I went up to him and, and I basically said, you know, I said, Hey, Roberto, thanks for coming or whatever. And he, he Roberto Soto is interesting. So five minutes later, 
there towards the entrance of the building, Stu Schwartz, Scott McGee, and Roberto Soto are standing having a conversation. And I've got a photo because I took a photo of this as well. So when they were done talking, and this was just before we were giving Stu the award for being in the Hall of Fame, I was doing the icebreaker stuff. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, you got to see Scott McGee. And he's like, Scott's such a wonderful guy. He's, you know, such a, he was such a great guy to work with. And I said, you got to see Roberto Soto. When's the last time you saw Roberto Soto? And he goes, that son of a bitch, just like that. And it was so funny because it was so out of character for Stu, you know, <laughs> he just, yeah. So that, that, I guess that's my funny story, how he reacted to that. But uh, yeah, just, that's a, that's a hard one, man. That's a hard one. So Barry, I don't know if you had a chance to see this. It was posted by someone in the group today. AEW announced that they are, uh, let's see, I'll just read you the news release, all elite wrestling, AEW and the Owen Hart foundation, a nonprofit charity, which provides a vast range of assistance and opportunities to individuals in need across the world are collaborating to honor the legacy of late wrestler Owen Hart a beloved figure in the pro wrestling community and beyond. This collaboration includes the launching of the annual Owen Hart Cup Tournament within AEW, which will see the winner receive a cup known as, quote, the Owen, unquote, as well as the production and distribution of unique and original Owen Hart merchandise, including specified retail goods, as well as the upcoming AEW console video game. So, Barry, I'm just going to say this. Well done, AEW. Well done. And when that Owen Hart merchandise comes out, sign me up. Bear. Ab absolutely 100% with this, too. So I, we should say as well, I believe they have partnered with the Owen Hart Foundation, which I think, I don't know, you know, but this was signed off by Owen Hart's widow. Yes. And and she would His not Martha. Yeah. Yes. She would never do business, obviously, and rightly so with the WWE based off of the actions of what caused Owen's death and then what followed after Owen's death. And I like the fact that they were able to have contact with her. And the fact, you know, as you just said, you use the, the two words nonprofit. This is something that uh, that they are doing. There's going to be I love the fact that that, you know, you've got a billionaire in the Khan family, Tony or, you know, his father, they are going to be throwing money at the Owen Hart Foundation. I would absolutely assume that. I think it's wonderful. I think it's fantastic. I, I love the fact that his wife and children are on board with this. I do want to say I did see people criticizing this today on a daily basis. Like, I, really? Really? Yeah. You on know. a daily basis, Jeff, I find myself, which, and I've had uh, two people within 24 hours reach out to me and go, are you okay? You don't seem to be on Facebook or online that much. I got to tell you, I'm really fucking irritated by a lot of it, which is why I'm not. I always thought it was the politics. It's not. It's the fact that uh, it, people, it, it, people form these opinions and it's, it's almost like I could say four words to you and you form an opinion on it. But you don't want to see what the story is. You don't want to see that all this money that AEW is going to make, which is going to go to the Owen Hart Foundation, is going to help a lot of people. This is a legitimate foundation. So the fact that people are criticizing something as fantastic 
as wonderful on every level that this is, sits, I sit here and I scratch my head. I'm just, I'm completely just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. As somebody said to me a couple of years ago, social media is, and I think I was high as it's a It's Satan itself. It. It's, <laughs> it's Satan. It's that it's given every fucking moron yes. on, in the world a, a platform, voice yeah. to be. Exactly. You can go onto YouTube and you could. My kids were showing me, Jeff, I don't know, because your kids are way older, but my kids like two or three years ago were showing me videos on, I think it was Instagram of uh, this guy, Daddy Longneck. Do you have any idea? So there were. <laughs> I will bow to your better knowledge. I have no idea. Oh, there's idea. nothing better knowledge about this shit. Like this is bottom feeder. But there, there are people that will go on to, and it used to be Instagram. I do think it's probably TikTok now. And they would have these massive followings of people. There was a guy named like Patty, Supreme Patty. My kids would show me. And these were the, the you know, it, you would just sit here and go, there's nothing funny. There's nothing interesting. And if anything, it's sad. And as you just said, it, it's given every moron a platform to voice their opinions, whether these are valid or educated opinions or not. And it's I, I just it, it is it well. is a society of people that are famous for being famous. There you go. That's and it. I don't know if it started with the effing Kardashians or what. They're but yeah, that that is like, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, don't even get me started on that. So, yes, yeah. uh, uh, Tony Khan, AEW. Well done. Absolutely. Uh, I congratulate you on that. Please, if there's anyone out there affiliated with AEW that listens to this find Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast, reach out to me because I absolutely will purchase. I'm not looking for a freebie. I will fucking purchase any sort of Owen Hart merchandise that you put out there for uh, the public to buy because I am happy to support anything involving Owen Hart, especially if it's not WWE related. Uh, and I if that makes me a hater, that makes me a hater and too effing bad. So anyway, let's no, move I on to our I next. Don't think, and I don't think it makes you a hater in any form. I actually, Jeff, I'd like to piggyback off of what you just said. Piggyback uh, or piggyback? Which which one it, do you want? I'm a, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm I know being a hater, Barry. We're recording at a sequence, so I'm still a little discombobulated. But I would like to piggyback on what you just said. And if there is anyone listening from AEW, I would like to offer you a table completely complimentary and gratis at the CWF Legends Fan Fest taking place November the 6th in the beautiful Tampa suburb of Lutz. A free table to sell the Owen Hart merchandise. I will personally put 100 bucks down on that table and buy stuff. Oh. And I know that people in attendance oh, will uh, sell. Now, let me just ask you. You're offering this table gratis, saying that you're giving $100 uh, for any of the Owen Hart merchandise. Will Penzer, first of all, agree to the free table, and will Penzer match <laughs> the $100? What about it, Penzer? I'm calling you out. Yeah, he is calling you out, Penzer. And I uh, I, I want to get Dave on this podcast so we can call him out, and he hears it. Cash uh, money, Dave Penzer. Yes. I can tell you that Dave will not stop me with the free table because Dave can't stop me with the free table. <laughs> hundred dollars. That's another story. That's a whole other story. I can guarantee he's not putting a hundred dollars down though. Yes. Yes, indeed. So let's switch gears now to, uh, Oh, Barry, it's been a tough weekend for some people affiliated with the WWE 
as a Dark Side of the Rings plane ride from hell episode, Barry. Oh, good Lord. Tommy Dreamer has had a bad weekend. <laughs> Tommy so, Dreamer has had the worst weekend possible. I'd say, so yes. here's the thing, okay? And you, you've had a chance to watch the entire episode now? The entire episode. You should have since I sent you the uh, link. But anyway, here's a couple things that, that I just want to ask, okay? It, first of all, was Tommy Dreamer idiotic for his statements? Absolutely. And, and the first thing I thought of when I when I saw that was, wow, Tommy Dreamer loves Ric Flair and he's doing his best to provide cover fire for Ric Flair on this. Would that be fair to say, Bear? It would, yes. Okay. Uh, it, completely idiotic, but while not agreeing or understanding why he said it, it you know, that's part of what I, I felt was like, oh, he's trying to he's trying to protect Ric Flair. Okay. Yes. Does anyone else find it a little humorous though that Tommy Dreamer's the one giving shit, giving, uh, getting a load of shit about this, and no one's calling out Ric Flair for the apparent sexual assault that was committed on this poor uh, stewardess? And you know, let me just say, Barry and I, over the course of 207 podcasts, have praised Ric Flair up and down to we're blue in the face. For his greatness in the ring, okay? But you know, folks, just because you're great in the ring, it doesn't make you a great human being. And yeah, Ric Flair has done, I'm sure, stuff for charity. And, you know, uh, I know that he uh, has posed with Benji Fido's son, Antonio. And I'm sure that when the time calls for it, Ric Flair can be a great guy, okay? But I'm sorry. The Ric Flair that they talked about was not a guy that was out getting a couple laughs for the boys. Hey, hey, watch me swing my dick around. No, the Ric Flair that was doing that was a major fucking asshole that probably should have been charged criminally. I mean, am I completely off base and wondering this, Barry? Why the fuck wasn't Ric Flair called out? And I really wondered, it's not like he's affiliated. How about somebody reach out to Ric Flair and say, uh, Mr. Flair, would you like to comment on this? And, you know, at which point, of course, Rick would have gone, uh, no, thank you. Well, I believe they did. I believe okay, I so saw they did, that. Fine. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I want to see some reporters uh, camped out at Ric Flair's house asking him some fucking very pertinent questions here, Barry. Because as I watched this, I was like, okay, shit on Tommy Dreamer. He deserves it for providing the cover fire. But how about somebody shit on Ric Flair? Or is Ric Flair the sacred cow of pro wrestling? Is Ric Flair, as someone said, uh, I can't remember who it was that said it during the show, uh, is he like, I think it was Jim Ross now that I think about it, said he's like a made man in the mafia. You can't touch yeah. him. That's exactly what Jim Ross said, that he's a made man. He said the best way I can equate it is that he's a made man. There, there were so many thoughts that I had immediately following watching this episode. First off, I don't think a lot of the information was brand new for me. I think that a lot of this had been covered, whether it was the observer or even the torch back in 92, this was a story and we had heard it. I, we didn't, I don't think I heard about the Ric Flair Dick swinging thing at the time, but I, 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 we had heard a lot, but let's also be honest. This is not the first time Ric Flair has swung his dick at female at females. This is probably in his lifetime, it probably occurred thousands of times. And I, uh, it, the fact that Tommy Dreamer, 
who said something it, it was baffling in the sense that Tommy Dreamer has twin daughters that are probably 12, 13, 14 years old. So these are young. So to cover for Ric Flair was an odd way to do it. But I also understood a little bit because even even the stewardess said it. She never thought that Ric Flair was coming to rape her. And, and and I was happy to hear that because I don't think for, you know, and I don't know, but I, in my head, I wasn't thinking that Ric Flair was uh, taking his dick out and, you know, coming after women in a galley to, uh, to rip their clothes off and rape them. He was being Ric Flair and he was being Ric Flair in a character that was accepted within pro wrestling for a couple of decades. His behavior, as egregious as as his behavior is, he had a free pass to do all that shit. And I had a long conversation with somebody in the business today about it. And the truth was, wrestlers don't always understand or didn't. They, I'm sure they do now. They didn't understand right from wrong. And and I know that's mind blowing. And this, let me clearly say, this is not an excuse for any of this behavior. Because if you commit these things, if I did it, I would be in jail. And rightly so, I should be in jail. So I'm not making it. What I'm trying to get people to understand is this was a mentality that existed in professional wrestling for years. And Jeff, you have said on this podcast more than once, the closer you get, the farther you'll want to be away. And it's, it's completely, the more you know the worse you feel, the dirtier you feel. How many professional wrestlers out there, and why don't we say 1970s through current, have no skeletons of any sort in the closet? How many would there be? A very small percentage, especially in the, the, the 80s. I think the 80s into the 90s was an, an era of just decadence and things happening. And I can tell you, I, I was at, you know, I... I I was in uh, a hotel in Orlando and there were wrestlers staying there. And I heard these stories the next day and it was mind blowing. And years ago, and, and you may remember this, Jeff, Marty Jannetty, and this was before Marty was what he is currently. Cause this is going to go back 10, 12 years ago. We knew Marty had issues, but we didn't know Marty Jannetty was on wrestling classics and he had just joined and everybody was thrilled that they had a wrestler and everybody was in the uh, blowing smoke up the ass stage. And then Marty said, I'm going to tell you guys a great story. And he tells a great story in Marty's uh, words. And it's a story of being on a plane. I believe the ultimate warrior was on the plane. And I believe Shawn Michaels. I think these are the two other names. And they, they roofied a girl and sexually assaulted her on the plane. Now, Marty Jannetty is not telling me this story. Marty Jannetty is posting this story on a fucking wrestling message board for the world to see that he committed a felony. He's posting it. Why? Because he didn't realize what he had done was wrong. And I realize that that sounds like possibly the most idiotic statement anyone could ever make. But if you have another reason, there's another piece of logic that a guy would go on to a fucking public message board, admit to drugging and raping someone 
I would love to hear it. This occurred all the time in professional. It's a sad, sad chapter. Jeff, you and I both know, and a lot of our listeners know, it's not like we're privy to this shit. Wrestling was a bastion for anything, whether it was racism, massive drug abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. It runs the gamut. And there was fuck incest. We've heard horrible stories. There are people in jail who were, and we, you guys know who I'm talking about. This is just, it is, uh, it is, it's horrific. And as I watched this show, I was like, look, I don't think Tommy Dreamer's a bad guy. I don't know. Some people love him. I don't, I don't have any idea, but most people and Jerry Briscoe said it to me. He goes, I'm real surprised that Dreamer is catching us. He's one of those guys that always kind of stayed away from all this shit. I'm sure in ECW, I mean, I've heard stories about ECW that would make fucking Led Zeppelin stories seem like uh, Captain Kangaroo was doing them. Like ECW. Probably not the best time when you're being asked about a supposed or alleged, I'm going to say alleged, not supposed, an alleged sexual assault that may have taken place aboard an airplane, which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, I think that takes it into the whole federal offense uh, category. Yeah. Uh, But when you're asked about a sexual assault that may have taken place, that's probably not a good time to start making a joke about the fact you got a ponytail and people out there may not like it. That was probably not a really good timed joke, Bear. No, well, look, in his, I don't want to say defense because that's the wrong verbiage. I understand what he was doing when he did that, and that was to deflect, I guess, a lot of the negativity that was that he I think he realized what he had said, and I think he decided to try to lighten it up. Also, you got to realize when these shows are filmed, they're not watching videotape and all this other stuff. There's a guy asking questions, the camera's on, and these interviews can go for an hour. Tommy Dreamer was probably on the show for five or six minutes. So they are cutting and taking stuff also out of context to put it up there. That's fair. It's it's a fact. It's just, it's, you know, so they may have asked him one question and he responds, but they decide to put that at another point. You know, again, I, I, I'm with you at the end of the day in that I, I don't know if Tommy Dreamer based off what he said should be canceled permanently but I think maybe we need to look at Ric Flair. And I, I, I will tell you this. I think that there are a lot of guys based off that last episode that are probably now, and there is a guy I have heard. So I have heard stories about two guys that are no longer with us that worked in WCW that did horrific things to women. And they, these were two guys that could have had any woman they wanted, but it was more important to them to get fucked up and abuse women. And I have heard stories about another guy that worked in the WWF that was uh, once a sexy boy and not quite as sexy. And if even one of these stories, and I think I've heard a dozen, if even one of these stories are true, there is no way that this guy isn't shitting his pants right now going shit. I hope that some of my shit that I did doesn't come out in public because it exists. I do think, I think Jeff, I think we are going to see a return of kayfabe because I think based off of what this last episode did, 
I don't think there's going to be guys wanting to talk publicly about stuff. I, I just, uh, you know, un- unless they're going to really think through what they're saying, I don't. So end result with this show, I was, I wasn't necessarily, I'll tell you who I was really ticked off at was fucking Jim Ross. And I'll tell you why Jim Ross took no accountability for any of this shit that happened. And in his segments, he was defensive, which I thought that's a really weird tactic. He was defensive and he would continually say things like, yes, I was the VP, but I can't be everywhere at once. And never once did he apologize. Never once did he say I was sorry. He would say, I can't be everywhere at once. I was one guy. These guys were stupid behavior, which they were. But never once did he say, I'm really sorry that I wasn't able to do more. I'm really sorry for this woman that was uh, scared out of her mind, thinking she might have been attacked or something like that. Only at the very end did he say, in my position, I guess I, I would be held accountable. I was just, I walked away. And there's been a lot of criticism of JR over the years, and I usually defend him. And as I walked away, and again, look, this may have been taken out of context. I, I, you know, I don't have any idea, but I was just really like, never once did he ever try to say, I'm sorry. Even if he wasn't responsible, you still should have fucking apologized. You still should have said, maybe I could have done more. Maybe I should have done more. Uh, And then the whole thing of like, you know, talking about, you know, Kurt Hennig gets fired, but. Ric Flair doesn't get fired. And, you know, who else got fired? There were other, he was talking, other guys got fired and some guys didn't. And it's like, so who picks and chooses? You know, Kurt Henning and Brock Lesnar could have fucking brought the plane down. They could have killed people in doing this shit, but there was no way they were going to cut Brock, right? Well, and and, and one last point before, and then I'll get off my rant. One of the Uso brothers, and I don't know if it's Jimmy or Jay, I don't have any idea, was arrested, I don't know, I'll say two months back for a DUI. I believe it was his third DUI while he's been with the WWE. And instead of terminating his employment, which would have been the right thing to do based off of a third offense, I'm not saying one offense because I think anybody can make a mistake, Jeff. I've never done it, never would do it, but to that point, I I don't know if I'd fire a guy based off of one DUI. However, your third DUI with a company and and we don't fire you. And instead we give you one of the tag titles. I mean, give me a fucking break. And why there's not a public outcry about that. I have no idea. So now that we have uh, called out Ric Flair, now that we have called out Jim Ross, uh, now that we have mentioned Kurt Henning and Brock Lesnar, we haven't mentioned the one person that could have done something about this. The one person that was on the fucking flight who was sitting, by all accounts, next to his wife as this sort of behavior was going on, but who has a reputation of not wanting to appear to be the bad guy to his employees. Fuck you, Vince McMahon, because you are a pussy. You're a fucking coward because all you had to fucking do 
And if you think I'm fired up about it, you're damn right. Because I've seen women and I've known women who have been victims of sexual assault to a much greater degree than that woman on the plane that night. But fucking Vince McMahon, Vincent Kennedy McMahon was sitting on that flight and didn't want to fucking appear to be the bad guy, didn't want to fucking get up and say, hey, you motherfuckers, sit your asses down in the seat, shut your fucking mouth, don't have any more to drink. And when we get off the flight, you get in a fucking cab, you get in a limo, whatever, and you get your asses to the arena. Sit the fuck down and shut up. But no, Vince is too much of a pussy for all that bravado and all that fucking strutting. Fuck you, Vince, because you should have done something about it. And how come everyone's pissing on Tommy Dreamer and we're pissing on, oh, I don't know, Brock Lesnar and Kurt Hennig and Ric Flair and no one's fucking pissing on Vince McMahon. It's about fucking time somebody pissed on Vince McMahon's leg because it's a long time fucking coming and it should have happened. Oh, bear. Should have happened years I'm ago. I'm having that Chevy Chase moment. From- you are. If Vince uh, McMahon, first off, everything you just said, Jeff, would be 100% correct, and you don't have to do the check on that one. He is a real fucking piece of shit because he could have flexed his ownership muscle, and that would have been a smooth ride home. And instead, he decided to turn a blind eye. And then what do they do? So you got Scott Hall. And by my account, Jeff, the only thing Scott Hall did was almost overdose on the plane. I, I didn't, he did, wasn't really doing too much to people, right? I guess he, he, well, he, there gro- was, he allegedly groped that same poor fucking woman. Groped this, right. Who, whatever it, they gave her, uh, civilly, uh, to compensate her was not enough. No, and it sounds like, and again, and, and, and here's the other thing there was criticism of her. In in some, I don't believe it was our group, but in, but in certain groups there was criticism of her this past week. And for the life of me, again, I I can't figure out why you would find any sort of criticism with this woman who clearly seems like she's still a little, you know, this is still disturbing to her. But there was some sort of settlement, I guess, between her and the airline company. I don't know. I, I forget who that was. But you're you're right about Vince McMahon. He absolutely could have quelled this. And he picked and chose who he wanted to be the fall guy for this. I'm at this stage where what is it going to fucking take for Vince McMahon to finally be held accountable for the, some of the shit he's either done or not done throughout all these years. What, what, what finally is going to occur? There's a million stories out there. Again, if one of those stories is true, I think that's enough. You know, the Nancy Argento story, Argento, Argentino, Argentino, the, I believe, yeah. yeah, the woman that Jimmy Snuka allegedly murdered and then Vince covered up. Why? You know, I, I just how is this still fucking a cover up? This is murder. I don't I just don't get it. I don't get it. I know Andrew Yang and this is not going to be political, but I know that uh, he's being looked at Vince for uh, the independent contractor thing which is, you know, certain people have done it for years. And the sad part was you take a guy like Jesse Ventura, who has his own baggage to carry, obviously, but Jesse tried to start a union to protect wrestlers years ago and was essentially, you know, kicked out of the business for years because of that. So, you know, after a whole Hogan uh, allegedly told Vince that uh, Jesse was starting those uh, sort of uh, uh, problems. Yeah, which and and there's you know that's a whole shit. We can this will be an eight hour conversation <laughs> now, yes. Jeff. Yeah, exactly. But yes, you're right. Hulk Hogan went and uh, and yeah, 
And exactly. And you well, know, what? you know, yeah, and yeah. let me just say, talk about, and I'm interrupt your your train of thought there, Bear. But you you talk about things that Vince McMahon has looked the other way for years and years about. I just finished, and let me tell you, for anybody out there that has some sort of agenda about Dave Meltzer. I just finished the 1997 yearbook that's out there and you can get it uh, at Amazon. I know he's done one in, for 1993 and I think 2014 was the other one. And I, I sat there and re uh, read it and I started reading uh, a little bit about uh, the uh, the Montreal thing and uh, and some of the other things that happened that year. And let me tell you that the, Barry referenced a, a certain sexy boy out there and you know, I know this guy has uh, reportedly found religion, uh, and I, I hate to be that guy, but I sure notice a lot of guys that have done some really shitty things in their life in the pro wrestling business that eh, they find religion later in life. You know, and I can remember uh, when I was uh, when I was part of the South Florida dinners uh, with the Legends of Wrestling. Uh, I sat down with uh, Ted DiBiase, and uh, I'm not going to mention the name of the guy that I asked him about. I said, but uh, do you think uh, that there are guys out there that uh, kind of use the religion thing as a, uh, a basis of kind of explaining away bad behaviors and, uh, you know, sort of uh, letting people look past that? And he's like, well, I I'd like to think that that doesn't happen. I, I think there are some people that truly find religion, find God, whatever. But maybe there are some that uh, it's sort of another way of working the crowds, the way you do as a wrestler, you know? And, you know, as I read the 97 yearbook, Shawn Michaels was not a good person. And quite frankly, yeah. I think Shawn Michaels, uh, to his to his credit, at this point, sort of admits that he was uh, yes. not a good person back then. Yep. Uh, but this guy that would suddenly uh, come up with a mysterious injury right when it was his turn to... Uh, to lose a title. And then I read as I would refer, and it, it, Triple H did the same thing. Gee, I, I can't imagine where he would have learned that behavior from. And Kevin Nash had a situation where he was due to drop a title. Oh, I've got a quad injury. I don't know. Uh, you know, Kevin Nash has more injuries, I think, than anyone in the history of the business. But it's a learned behavior that became accepted because Vince McMahon did not put his foot down. And what he should have done was he should have gone. Uh, yeah, no, Sean, you're the most talented guy I've got in my uh, in my business here. But you know what? Fuck it. You're not going to lose the title when I tell you to. Uh, goodbye. And send him on his fucking way. And if you wanted to go to WCW and work for Eric Bischoff, fuck him. You know, that that sort of behavior has been tolerated by Vince McMahon. And whether maybe maybe Vince is now separate and apart from that. And now we have to put the blame on Triple H and Stephanie uh, if something happens like the Uso uh, gentleman that you referred to with the three DUIs, uh, maybe they should be uh, held accountable for allowing that sort of stuff to happen. But this is a pattern of incredibly poor behavior. That's a really nice way of putting it, Barry. That has gone on. And I remember, I think years ago, when uh, when you were publishing chair shots of the newsletter, that, that I said, for those of you that uh, have never been exposed to some of the behaviors that you're heroes of pro wrestling have exhibited, you know, and, and at the time, I, I believe when I wrote the article, I was referencing something that Fritz von Erich had done with uh, with one of his sons where he was, you know, profiting, I think, off of Carrie's death or something like that. 
And I said, you know, if this is your first experience being shocked by something that happened with a pro wrestling promoter, uh, welcome to the club, because this is not something new. And, you know, as I sat there and read all about Sean McMahon, uh, Sean McMahon, uh, Sean Michaels in the 97 Observer Yearbook, I couldn't help but think, and Barry, tell me what you think about this. And maybe it's not to the degree that Sean Michaels, there's a lot of correlation between Sean Michaels and Buddy Rogers. What do you think? And if you're just tuning into us right now, we'd like to welcome you to Bitch Fest 2021 <laughs> as we uh, <laughs> we're taking on soon. Bitch Fest 2022. <laughs> we're taking on all the evils of professional wrestling in this fucking episode right now. The Pandora's box has been opened. Yeah, that's probably a good a good equation. Buddy, the only thing with Buddy Rogers, the only thing that I would differentiate is a lot of people that worked and that's probably the same with Shawn Michaels. A lot of people that worked with Buddy Rogers couldn't stand him. It was a uh, he had some people that were his people, but a lot of because you've heard that infamous story with Carl Gotch and Bill sure. Miller. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of people. You know, that, the comparison I was making was both were supremely talented guys. Sure. You know, I mean, we'll give them both that. And, and both of them were guys that were eh, known to put up a bit of a fuss when uh, they were uh, told, uh, no, you can't do that, or, hey, you got to drop the belt here. Uh, mysterious illnesses would appear, uh, you know, something. And it, it just, as I was reading about Shawn Michaels in the 97 yearbook, I was like, yeah, it sounds a lot like Buddy Rogers. And it brings to mind a question that I asked you uh, many, many episodes ago. We were talking about the Dynamite Kid. The yeah. Dynamite Kid, probably one of the greatest in-ring performers in the history of the wrestling business. A generational talent. I've said that probably at least 24 times now, Barry, if not more. But such a loathsome human being outside the ring. It, do you really want to take the, the evil that you're going to have with the good? You know, Is Shawn Michaels in 1996, as great as he was or in 1997, is he worth the fucking headache? And apparently to Vince McMahon, he was because Vince McMahon essentially chose Shawn Michaels over Bret Hart, you know, and I'm, 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 not, I'm not excusing yeah. Bret Hart. I'm sure Bret had his own issues, but, you know, really Bret, Bret's issues, though. And let, let's because this is interesting. I actually had a very similar conversation today and they brought up Bret Hart and Bret Hart in his autobiography, which was a fantastic book, by the way, yep, Bret discussed mistakes he made in professional wrestling and the mistakes he made in his marriage. And he said he cheated and he was very honest about it. And it, you know, he wasn't human to that degree, but at the same time, cheating on a spouse, while I don't condone it, uh, while I don't, you know, it's certainly not going to be good for a healthy marriage in any form, certainly, uh, head and shoulders above drugging and raping people. And because again, you're cheating on your spouse, it's two grown adults. We're hoping that, are making a decision to go forth and do that. But drugging and raping people is, uh, I'm just shocked. You hear about the H-bomb. We had, you and I heard about the H-bomb 30-something years ago. And, you know, whether they were being roofied or H-bomb, but it was very common where these girls were being slipped drinks and then being sexually molested. And, and there were people in charge of these, these groups, whether it's Vince McMahon that heard this or whether it was Eric Bischoff. And look, I, I can't tell you personally, I wasn't in the room and I don't know it, but if I've heard all these stories, then these guys have heard all these stories and nothing, nothing's been done. Nothing was ever done about it. And you know, again, if because we don't want to mess with the bottom line and that's but what how in God's name 
do you? And look, I and you're right. First off, let me say you're right. But then, you know, devil's advocate, I go, so you're condoning rape so your company can make extra money. You know, it's not like if Shawn Michaels left the WWE that they're going to fold, right? They're not going to fucking fold. They'd still be very successful. They just wouldn't have Shawn Michaels. So, and, and I don't, I should say, I don't mean to even target him and pull him out, but pick anybody. For the most part, if you've got somebody that's a rapist uh, and, and you're aware of this shit that's occurred, because these stories were common, you know, 30 years ago, this was a big fucking deal. The dirt sheets were reporting on this shit. We would hear these stories of guys passing out on drugs and all this sexual, all this stuff. This was all, this was a public knowledge in the sense that these were in the dirt sheets, which means there was an obligation by Vince McMahon to investigate. And the fact that we're sitting here 30 years later and the man is still scot-free of any of this is mind-boggling and mind-blowing. When does it happen? When are these guys that were aware of the horrible things that were occurring, Jeff? And I'm not talking about getting drunk and, and being an asshole. You know, and I felt for Dustin Rhodes a little bit, by the way, because it was obvious. I've heard, you know, I've heard he was deeply, madly. You talk about a heartbreak, Jeff. When, uh, when his wife left him, that's exactly what it was. But I'm talking about guys that, that were drugging and, and raping women or, and even other guys. You know, there was all these stories of, of guys would, you know, get these other guys in the shower and do these things. And it amounts to rape. There's no other way around it. When are people going to be held accountable for that shit? Because the fact that they haven't is disgusting. Well, and, you know, it's it's interesting because I think at the end of the episode, they talked about, uh, I think Kurt Henning got fired. Yeah. Uh, and, and then died, uh, sadly died. Yeah, no, and, and of course, and that's terrible. Scott Hall, I believe, was, uh, I don't know if he was just put in rehab or if he was actually terminated. He was terminated. But yeah. <laughs> Brock Lesnar, who, as you said, almost brought the plane down. Yep. Well, well, Brock's a main eventer, so we're not going to do anything to him. And Ric Flair, well, he's a legend. We can't do anything to him. You know, that's just, wow. That's just, yep. uh, it's it's beyond embarrassing. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, we, we talk about Stu Schwartz and his wife, Bonnie, and and God bless both of them. But you, you sit there and wonder, how can anyone in good faith expose their spouse uh if they're not exposed to pro wrestling, how can you bring them into that world? You know, it's like, I, I try to keep, you know, my wife's in our Facebook group and stuff like that, but I, I try to keep her away from this stuff, you know, because Smart. yeah, I, I, I'll never forget going to, uh, I'll just say a wrestling wedding that I may have uh, referenced on this show before and yes, seeing behavior. And that it was not with the current Mrs. Bowdern. It was with the former Mrs. Bowdern and feeling when I left, like, Wow, what what did I do here? I, I exposed this woman who had had no idea what pro wrestling was about, and was just like, you know, sort of like, what the fuck did I just see? You know, like, uh, and, and I felt guilty that I exposed her to to the out of the ring behavior of some of quote the boys and, and the girls, to be honest with you. And I know the wedding of which you speak. I've heard the story, so I. I, I get it. And I agree with you. And his I, life uh, is such a weezerk, brother. That's all I'll say about that. Yep. 
Barry, it is now time for our match of the week. We are going to go to April 2nd, 1993. All Japan Women Dream Slam won. Barry, I have to tell you something before I throw it to you for your uh, your thoughts on the match. This was number two uh, in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter's Match of the Year competition in 1993. I, I can't imagine how much greater the number one match was <laughs> because holy shit, Akira Hokuda versus Shinobu Kandori. And I'm just going to say this because we'll post a link to this match yeah. uh, up on our Facebook page. I want you people that think the women in the WWE are really good. Even the women in the AEW. And, you know, I, I've been dismissive sometimes of the talents involved in women's wrestling in the United States. Uh, I really like Britt, Bar- uh, Britt Baker's character. Uh, I think she's very good in what D-M-D. she does. D-M-D. Exactly. Thank you very kindly. I forgot that part. But watch this match. And then when you watch that match, think about, like, Charlotte Flair. <laughs> and think about how... Yeah, she's not quite to this level just yet, Barry. Would you agree? Well, can we be fair? Are there ninety percent of the male wrestlers? Probably not. Because Akira Hokuda, by the way, Akira Hokuda, who survived, to quote Kurt Angle, a broken freaking neck. Uh, by the way, she broke her neck, held her neck in place. That was like in '88 or '89. Uh, held her neck in place and did the finish to the match. I mean, Akira Hokuda, next level, Barry. Uh, and next she takes level. on Shinuba Kandori. Uh, Kandori, a uh, a woman who competed uh, and got a bronze medal. I don't think it was the Olympics. I want to say it was like maybe the, uh, the all eight. Or... I'm gonna I'll look it up. What what you're talking about the match, but uh, in um, uh, I want to say was it judo or or something like that. But she was legitimately a badass. I'll just say that. And uh, so, Barry, tell us what you thought about the match. Yeah, so it is. Uh, this is at a different level, and this is not a this is not a wrestling, you know, clinic by any. This is a brawl, and the storyline here is these two women hate each other with the deepest of passions, and it comes out in this match. And uh, you're not going to get a lot of wrestling, but you're going to get brawling taken to a realistic degree. And when I say that. I, you know, I, I think with ECW and I just, I bring up ECW could really be anybody, any promotion with certain promotions, the bell rings, they're already breaking out light tubes and shit like that. The, the, there was a storyline here where these women hated each other. And this is kind of the, the culmination, if you will, of that storyline. So you'll see, this is a bloody fucking battle. I really like right out of the get go too. Uh, Hokuda is selling her her arm. She's selling her arm. Kandori is uh, is working over the arm, but they they take this outside the ring, and you're going to see shit that you've you've never seen women do realistically. Uh, Kandori reverses a tombstone style pile driver onto uh, of her own onto a table. Hokuda yeah, they, they essentially do the Randy Savage Ricky Morton yeah. table spot, but it's women doing it. So yeah. yeah. Uh, Hokuda is bleeding within the first 10 minutes and the, I mean, where she's bleeding. This is a major, major deal. The blood really adds into the drama and Hokuda kind of works this thing where she's inspired by the blood. She gets Kandori outside the ring. They're brawling. Kandori's now busted open. 
definitely not as bad as Hokuto. They get back in the ring. Kandori goes back to her submissions. And I, she was, she was judo or something, but she is kind of like a submission specialist in a lot of ways. Let, let me just interrupt you because I, I found a thing. She, sure. was, she won the bronze medal in the 1984 World Judo Championships. Wow. So she was a, a judo uh, expert or however you want to phrase that. So, yeah, but she was, she was legit. She was uh, a complete badass who transitioned into pro wrestling. I interrupted Barry. Please continue. Yeah. Uh, Hokuto uh, is back in the ring. She does this uh, insane dive to the floor, which I think probably did more damage to her than Kandori. At the end of the match, and this is really dramatic, you could see where they're exhausted. They have laid out a year's worth of matches in one. Would you agree in one match? They have laid it out. These women are spent. They're beat. Hokuto doesn't even seem like she's even conscious at, at certain points. And the ref actually slaps her. Did you catch that? Yeah. Ref slaps her, I guess, to make sure. Are you still with us? Are you still here? This is a, they're in rare territory with this. They're trading uh, these vicious moves, head dropping moves. They're kicking out. Uh, they're throwing fists. And, and at the end, they both are just punching each other out. And somehow Okudo finds a way to cover uh, Kandori after 30 minutes. But this is a, uh, you know, this is a brawl. You're not going to see a, uh, a wrestling clinic like sometimes we've discussed. But if you follow the storyline and maybe spend five minutes in, in seeing the storyline between these two and the backstory, it really adds to the drama of this match. I believe you're looking at top five women's match of all time, without a doubt. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I believe uh, a while back we reviewed a match between uh, Manami Toyota and her uh, longtime partner, Toshio Yamada. And it's funny, both the two matches are great for completely different reasons. Right. Which which speaks to the greatness of uh, the All Japan Women's Promotion uh, and uh, how they were presenting things so completely uh, different from one another, but both completely great because uh, the Yamada uh, Manami Toyota match was was such a wrestling clinic between two women who were just masters at it. And then uh, both these women, uh, Hokuda and Kandori, are both great wrestlers, but this was a brawl. And, you know, as I was sitting there listening to you, Barry, I wondered, you know, I, I kind of shit on uh, women's wrestling in this country somewhat, but I couldn't help but sit there and think to myself, if this match took place, okay, let's just say that, uh, you know, that Britt Baker and uh, what's what's the lady that uh, is her main rival right now? That just, oh, uh, Roxy Soho? Yeah, okay. So say Roxy Soho and uh, Britt Baker. Ruby uh, Soho. Ruby Soho, Ruby Soho. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and, and Britt Baker sat down and decided to have a match like this, okay? Whether it's on pay-per-view or regular AEW Dynamite show. Would the American viewer watching that program be prepared for the level of violence? <laughs> no, no. And I'm being serious about this because, you know, there's, yes. there's people that watch UFC that, you know, when two women beat the living fuck out of one another, they're kind of made a little uncomfortable by it. You know, sure. uh, they can watch two guys beat the living stew out of one another. But if it's two women in there, they get a little queasy about it. So would this level of violence and blood turn off the American viewer if it was done like in an AEW match. What do you think? I, I think so. I, I think this takes it 
to a, uh, I think where Japan, you know, they had seen some of this stuff before in the 80s, especially with Bull Nakano and Aja Kong and stuff like that. But I think this would be way too much for the average audience. That being said, and you brought up her name, Britt Baker, DMD, is uh, she's fantastic because this woman has wrestled bloody hard way, bloody broken limbs, broken nose. She's not only solid in the ring. And I had a conversation about her a couple of months where somebody didn't like her. And I was like, I could, I couldn't understand it because she, she can do a really good promo. Her matches are actually pretty good, but does anybody lay more out in a match than she does? Does she, does anybody else put their body on the line the same way she is? She's out there and she, she gets her ass kicked sometimes blood, broken noses. She still wrestles, continues her match. She still goes forth. I have so much respect for Britt Baker, but to answer long windedly answer your question, this type of match, if this was Britt Baker versus Ruby Soho, I think a lot of people would be like, no. And this is not a match for kids either. Like, this is not something you would yeah. want to show uh, kids. Benji, you don't want to show this match to Antonio. No. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of next level on the violence scale. But it's absolutely, uh, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but for you juice freaks uh, you know that, that get off on the blood, uh, wow. And Kandori's opened up too, not nearly to the level that uh, – that Hokuda is, but uh, Hokuda is just, she's just, you know, from, from everything, you know, much like you just said about Britt Baker, that nothing's going to stop her. I mean, she broke her neck on a stuffed pile driver <laughs> and, and, and held her neck in place. <laughs> I mean, look, who does that? Who, who has ever done that? Who has ever I, done that before? Just, that's just fucking sense. crazy. Yeah. Hokuda, I have no idea why I can remember this <laughs> very, her name before she got in the business, Hisako Uno. And that's one of those things where you asked me what name. I did last night. I don't remember. But I remember going there in 1987 in December, and I remember hearing about Hisako Uno. And then, like, one day I get a tape from Meltzer, and all of a sudden she's become Akira Hokuto. And she's, like, one of the main eventers in the promotion. She's absolutely fantastic. And everyone talks about, deservedly so, uh, people like Manami Toyota as the greatest woman wrestler of all time. And you're probably absolutely right. But do not sleep on Akira Hokuto when you watch this match. To me, my my favorite women's wrestler of all time is is always going to be Chigusa because right. Chigusa was the first women's wrestler that I really discovered. And I'll tell you something that I really think that uh, companies like the WWE and maybe to a lesser extent now AEW missed the boat on with the women's wrestler. If you're if you're going to push a woman's wrestler. Uh, or women's wrestling. One of the things the Japanese did so much better back then, and you know, we watched that match from Kingdom, and I don't know if they do it to that level, but building up the woman as a character or, or her personality or something like that, giving her a chance to display a personality is something, and whether it's because of the sexism that naturally exists in wrestling, I don't know. But, you know, I really give. AEW credit for allowing Britt Baker's personality to come through and, yep. and, you know, and to make her not just a, some faceless, I gotta be honest with you. I really don't know a lot of the other, you know, I'm constantly having to go, Barry, what's that woman's name again? You know, because I don't know them as characters. I know Britt Baker as a character, as much as I do as her, as a wrestler and the Japanese women, whether it's Bull Nakano, Dump Masamoto, uh, you know, Chigusa, Lioness, uh, they were all, they became characters and, and, and the storyline 
And, you know, Barry talked about the storyline here was that these two women really hated one another. And I'll tell you, as I was doing some research on Kandori, uh, you know, during her wrestling career, one of the things that happened when she first started, she started in 1986, okay? And they, of course, were much like the WWD with Ronda Rousey being, a, you know, a UFC fighter. Uh, they push her as this world tough. And so partly when she first started out, she uh, her big debut was against a woman named Jackie Sato. And Jackie Sato and Nancy Kumi were part of the beauty pair uh, in the er- earlier part of the 1980s. Uh, again, that's one of those things, Barry, asked me what I had for dinner last night. I don't remember. But I can tell you that, by God, Jackie Sato and Nancy Kumi were the beauty pair. Uh, and so in her first match, apparently – uh, they, they had some cooperation problems. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it was Candori just getting started in the business, but so the story goes that, uh, they have another match, uh, like about a year later and Sato uh, apparently went sort of off script and attacked Candori. That's never a good idea to go with someone who won a bronze medal in the judo, in the judo yeah. world championship, but she went and she hurt her eye and kept, kept hitting it, inflicting more and more injuries. So then there was a return match, at which point Kandori comes after Sato, basically beat the living shit out of her to the point where she forced her to retire. So, yeah, this is this is not a woman to be trifled with, uh, you know. So we will post a link to this absolutely amazing, amazing match. If you are not a fan of Japanese women's wrestling, do yourself a favor and watch this match. And by the way, can I also just mention... What kind of fucking outfit was that that Akira Hokuda had come out of <laughs> She had she looked like a female version of the great Kabuki, you know? I mean, just the the <laughs> the costume and the wig was unfucking blue. Because when she first came to the ring, I go, holy shit, did she blonde uh she dye her hair blonde? And I realized it was a wig. It was just it's just crazy. You gotta see it to believe it. Isn't so, it, is, isn't she married to uh Sasaki? She's married, yeah, Kintsuki Sasaki, right? Who uh they uh when we talked about the uh the story about the uh, the famous tour of uh, North Korea, uh, the matches they held there uh, with uh, Inoki and, uh, was it Flair? I think they did a Dark Side of the Ring episode about that. But anyway, Kintsuki Sasaki, who wrestled for New Japan, was there, and he met Akira Hokuda there. I don't know if they were married at the time or if they got married a little bit later or after that, but apparently uh, in the hotel they were in, one of the famous stories that came out of that uh, weekend was that uh, – Apparently, the two became a tad amorous. And uh, let's just say that Akira Hokuda was a bit noisy. Like hey to, uh, like to, uh, apparently was, was getting her oats and, uh, yeah, yes, hey, hey now, hey now. Hey, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, by the way, let me just say, uh, completely consensual by all accounts. Uh, by all accounts, absolutely. Yes, uh, after what we talked about earlier, let's just say yes. it was completely consensual. And by God, she appeared to be enjoying herself. There you go. So, Barry, as we uh, start to wrap things up here on episode 207, you know what that means, Barry? We are one episode away. Uh, now that we're done with this one, next week, four-year anniversary. Four years in the bank. Barry, what a long, strange trip it's been. Yeah, I remember those early negotiations. It was myself, you, Brian Last, a team of lawyers. Yes. We sat Do we around. Cheatham and how? Do we cheat him and how? Uh, right. And Dr. Sigmund Ziff, who was yes. a gynecologist slash 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 lawyer. Dr. Uh, Tony Onabla. <laughs> right. Remember that from the after bags. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lou Albano, psychiatrist, yes. Dr. Tony Onabla, which is Albano. Onabla. 
Yeah. So, and they, they did they did and they did a similar deal out in uh, Los Angeles. They had Professor Akanat. <laughs> Tanaka spelled backwards. Genius, right? Oh, that's uh, hilarious. Yes, but uh, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know what we're talking What were we talking about? So next week, four <laughs> years in the bank, our four-year anniversary, the special all-star yeah. episode. Oh, I'm sure we'll have tons of fun with that. So before we go, though, Barry, yes. I know we want to mention once again our proud, and after this episode, I'm not sure if he's as proud, uh, Ian Douglas and his new book, Barry. Why don't you tell the good folks about it? Or I should say, remind the good folks about it. Yeah, absolutely, too. So Ian Douglas has been a, uh, he has been a longtime supporter and advertiser with Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, so we are eternally grateful that uh, that he has decided to to advertise with us. And he has got a new book coming out. Uh, it's a collaboration with Brian Blair. The book is called Truth be told, and that's double E on B. So get it? Killer yeah, B. Joke, yeah, I told. It works out well. And uh, I, I recently spoke with Ian. He's very thrilled with the response that he's gotten thus far. Wants me to assure everyone that though they are at 300% of their goal, which is really an amazing feat. Hold on one second. So you see there, let, let me just say, advertisers, potential advertisers. What was that percentage again, Barry? Three hundred percent. Think about that next time you're thinking about spending your advertising dollar. Please continue, Bear. Absolutely. So he's at three hundred percent of goal. Wants me to assure everybody that even though they have hit their goal, if you have pledged money or pledge in the next couple of weeks, you will one hundred percent receive all of your items. This is going forward. Uh, as Ian knew it would, and and some of these items are great too, Jeff. When you start to look at it, uh, you can get the book by itself. It's twenty five dollars. It is shipped to you at twenty five dollars. You can get it uh, autographed. The book for thirty nine. Two copies at seventy one dollars. Uh, value. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can get a book in a killer bee mask for seventy four dollars. And then I think we talked about this last week. Brian actually worked the Mid-Atlantic region as the champ and was there very brief, but he also has some masks made up from the champ. You can get a champ mask and a book. You can, you can get a book in both masks. You can get two books and two masks. It's limitless. There's a collector set one and two, which is uh, killer bees. They autograph that for you. There's so many different things that you can pledge. You will receive all this merchandise. I believe everything is going out within the next four or six weeks. I have to get the exact timeline, but uh, this is all expected to be shipping shortly. Uh, the wheels easy are in you motion. Say, shipping shortly. Not easy at all, Jeff. I'm over okay. here wiping drool from my mouth as I say that. But, you know, again, Ian has been a great supporter of this podcast. Uh, Brian has been running the CAC for years. He does these Legends luncheons in Tampa which is uh, something where the old timers can get together. It's a reunion. It is for wrestlers or people within the wrestling community, but that is all nonprofit. He's not profiting off of that. So uh, he's a guy that has kind of helped preserve wrestling history. And for that, I am obviously grateful because it's something that you and I both try to do. So we, we encourage you. This is going to be a great book, 472 pages. So first off, you are not getting a book that will take you two hours to read. This will probably take you uh, several days to read. There are stories in here. Uh, there are stories about drugs, ribs, sexual conquests, etc. 
And Brian, I think one of the unique things, Brian does take accountability for any missteps that he has made along the way. And he basically does show remorse on some of these ribs. Apparently, Brian was a, a strict, harsh ribber. I don't believe to the level of Owen Hart or Kurt Hennig, two guys we have talked about uh, on this episode. But Brian was a pretty big ribber. And he says, sometimes I think we definitely went too far. So uh, I, I like that. I like that he can step outside of it and go, shit, I know we were crazy back then, but maybe we did go too far. Anyways, I have ordered my copy. I am super excited, super jazzed to see this. Jeff and I and Sweet Lou, the sweet man, we encourage you uh, to get a copy of this. You can find it on Indiegogo. Again, the book is called Truth Be Told. You can pledge as little or as much as you want, but support our advertisers. This show will continue as long as you do something like that. And Barry, isn't there something else hmm, coming up in the greater Lutz, Florida area? There is something coming up. Boy, am I excited It's almost like we planned that spot, huh? Kind of, almost, but sometimes things just fall into place. But November the 6th in the Tampa suburb of Lutz, CWF Legends Fan Fest 7, Jeff. Can't believe it's already been, this will be the 7th. Technically, two last year. So this should have been the six plus this should have been the ninth, but this is the seventh one. I'm very excited. We have with us, we have the original grappler, Len Denton. We have the rock and roll express rock and roll, brother, rock and roll, rock and roll, brother. (laughs) We have Jerry Jarrett with us. We have Bugsy McGraw with us. We have a couple of other surprises, which I'll be announcing in the coming days of people. Oh, it's very, I actually, uh, we, we signed the agreement yesterday. Boom. Uh, and yeah, you haven't even told me I have, this is all. Yes. Son and, uh, I'm of course I signed it without uh Penzer's knowledge. So oh, I, need no. to, I need to run it by him first, but it's a done deal. But, uh, yes, you'll be seeing, uh, you'll be seeing a former Florida heavyweight champion at our fan fest if all goes well and i believe you will and i'm very excited about that so i'm excited you can get tickets you can go to eventbrite put in cwf legends fan fest number seven you can also find us on facebook in numerous groups we have a cwf legends fan fest facebook group i also i either manage or mismanage depending on how you look at it the championship wrestling from florida archives group I promote it in there, and you can also get the information, Jeff, at the most luxurious, subtle, and wonderful Facebook group of all time. Breaking KP with Badrin and Barry. That's it. How many members now, Jeff? We are, let uh, me carry the four. Uh, at last check, 2,025. Over 2,000 wow. people, Barry. Wow. Yeah. And it's that's just a portion of. Uh, that's because we know, don't we- stick. To wrestling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did what I did there. Yeah. I did. That was good. Witchies. Yeah. There, go. there it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, anyway, folks, on that note, we are going to call it a day. So, on behalf of our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman. Oh, his experiences in Vegas. I wonder if any nudity was involved there, Barry. So, uh, and uh, my co host, Mr. Barry Rose, I will say that I am Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the Booker sometimes. And until next week, I would remind you that Breaking KP about it and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I don't know why I'm shouting. I have no inner monologue. Take it. Away.